These podcasts may contain mature subject matter or language. Listener discretion is advised. I will be doing an interview on the question of when do the social factors surrounding the creator of an artistic work become acknowledged or overlooked? And for what reasons might this occur? Hello, this Hello, this is Patrick Hampton for Yes, That Does Count as Social Theory, the show where I will be talking about a variety of topics, but I will loop social theory back in somehow. So, sit back and listen to some royalty-free music while the show is about to begin. Hello, I'm here with Dr. Avi Chomsky, and I would like to start by saying thank you. And is there anything you would like to tell us about yourself? Um, I am a professor of history at Salem State University, and um, I specialize in Latin American history, but also um, teach U.S. Latino history, uh, race and racism, indigenous histories of the Americas, immigration, um, those are the, and I also um, write and publish extensively on the areas that I work in. Um, well, I would like to start by asking the question of when do the social factors surrounding the creative and artistic work, such as like race and ethnicity and background, as you were mentioning, become acknowledged or overlooked? Um, I, I missed the very beginning of what you said related the social factors surrounding the creator of an artistic work. Oh, okay. Surrounding, surrounding the creator. That was the word I missed was creator. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I think it partly depends on the kind of work. Um, some kinds of work are, um, are very personal and grow out of a person's experiences. Um, some kinds of work are more um, abstract or theoretical um, or uh, come from just uh, different places, but it also depends on um, like, uh, I don't think we should essentialize things like race and gender and assume that everybody who belongs to a certain so-called race or gender um, has the same experiences. So we're all formed by multiple different types of factors that influence who we are, some of which are biological, genetic, and some of which are experiential. And I think it's sometimes quite difficult to disentangle those. And, um, you know, of course, we all know that race is a social construction. So the lived experience of race depends a lot on um, historical context and, um, and, uh, 
the experiences that one has based on on a whole bunch of other factors. So um, certainly um, race and gender are two factors that influence the people that we become, but they're two they're certainly not the only two factors. And I think they only exist in interaction with other factors. Um, what are some of these other factors that you're thinking of? Because like the idea of intersectionality and how things such as race and gender play into each other. And while everyone will have a different experience, they will still have some central idea of like a core shared experience and where would that line be drawn if at all between people who are like one part of the intersectionality with this and that and well i mean one thing that i hope has come out of this class that we've taken is that the experience of race and the meaning of race is very different in latin america than it is in the United States. So the experience of indigeneity is quite different in Latin America from in the United States. Um, so um, and the experience of indigeneity is not only very different in Latin America from in the United States, but say in Latin America, it's very different in Guatemala from in El Salvador, from two neighboring countries, it's different. Um, the experience of indigeneity is different um, in urban settings than it is in rural settings. So like there's so many multiple factors. Um, I don't think it's possible to, to say, well, in all cases, we're going to draw the line here. I think people are just really complicated. So, um, and people's experiences are really complicated. So, you know, could we say that every single human on the face of the planet has some experience with race? Um, no matter what your race is your putative race, because again, race is a social construction. Um, no matter what your race is, racialism in some way or other affects pretty much everyone on the planet. Um, but the nature and the meaning of those experiences of racialization can be quite varied so that one white person's experience of whiteness can be different from another white person's experience of whiteness. And one black person's experience of blackness can be different from another black person's experience of blackness. I think that art might, oh, sorry, you're saying. Um, so, um, you know, I think that it's difficult to try to generalize about a racialized experience without just stereotyping. But there are certain oppressions that are consistently put on groups and in Kyle T. May's um, Afro-Indigenous Solidarities and Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, he was talking about the idea that some of the 
oppression faced by the indigenous African slaves and the indigenous American slaves were similar in many regards, even though those factors aren't always in alignment, there are definitely things to look at. And I think art has served as a way of highlighting some of those things by the people who were perhaps in those experiences. Um, well, I'm not an artist, nor am I a um, scholar of art. So I guess I would hesitate to start to speculate without being more deeply immersed in the field as to what goes into the making of art. Um, you know, I, I would find it much easier to talk about what, what goes into the making of the work of a historian, for example. I think that could be considered art in many ways if art is just taking your experiences and expressing them in a new way, then writing a book, fictional or non-fictional, would be a form of art. Okay. Um, so if you read a book like Kyle Mays's book, he makes it very clear that his approach to history comes out of his lived experience as an Afro-Indigenous person, that his lived experience as an Afro-Indigenous person led him to ask certain questions about history. Um, and to recognize the invisibilization of Afro-Indigenous solidarities. Now, his experience of, as an Afro-Indigenous person uh, came from a particular childhood growing up in Detroit at a historical moment and in a family where radical leftist Afro-Indigenous solidarities played a big role in his consciousness of what it meant to be an Afro-Indigenous person. Not every Afro-Indigenous person grows up in that particular context with that particular set of experiences and with that particular kind of consciousness of what Afro-Indigeneity means. So I would say his, um, his coming to be a historian and writing that book came both out of his racial identity, but also out of his political identity of the meaning of that racial identity. Um, other people write history books. Not everybody writes a history of um, of uh, of a people they identify as their own people. And in fact, um, you know, as we've seen looking at the United States, the indigenous experience in the United States, there's quite a, diff a large variety of different indigenous experiences in the United States. If you want to compare, say, the Mashpee to, um, you know, in, in Massachusetts, um, remember, we saw the, the film on the MASH P9 um, to someone like Kyle Mays to um, to say someone like Elena Roberts, who is also an Afro-Indigenous person, um, but she grew up in Oklahoma, um, 
having ancestors who were enslavers, ancestors who were enslaved, ancestors who, um, that is Indian ancestors who were enslavers and enslaved, um, white American ancestors and African-American ancestors. So, you know, her, ex and um, she did not grow up in the highly politicized uh, Afro-Indigenous solidarity circles that Kyle Mays grew up in. Um, so she wrote a very different kind of Afro-Indigenous or at least her, so anyway, Kyle Mays did not write about, he specifically said that he's not going to write about the five tribes and the uh, indigenous enslavement of Africans. That's not his topic. Um, that was Elena Roberts's topic. Um, so, uh, and I can't even remember what question I was going to answer, but that, that identities are formed by many different things. But some people write histories that are not based on their own identities at all. Um, uh, you know, am I only allowed to write a history of my own grandparents? Or can I write histories about other people who are not my grandparents? Well, I think part of this whole idea comes down to whether like, what are you trying to say with your experience or with other people's experience? Because sometimes people use their heritage as almost like a place to sort of defend themselves. And um, now if people, they have to be careful about where they're coming from when they write a story as a, out of a risk of possibly, I don't know, driving home the wrong point. Like if someone were to write about experiences that they didn't take the time to learn about. Well, everybody should learn good. about something before they write about it. But, um, but um, everybody is also capable of learning about the experiences of others. And in fact, every historian has to learn about the experiences of others. Otherwise we would all just be writing autobiographies. So most historians write about people who we never met. Most historians write about people who were dead before we were born. Um, we have to learn about their experiences. Whether those people share certain characteristics with us, national, racial, um, you know, most historians start writing histories when they're in graduate school, maybe when they're in their 20s, um, and they write about people who are older than them. They've never experienced being in their 50s, and yet they write about people who were in their 50s. <laughs> um, you know, the whole experience of scholarship or writing history is getting beyond what you have experienced yourself because that's when what you write in a memoir or an autobiography um, and into writing about the experiences of others. Well, I agree that there is with history and also with like fictional works, there's an element of 
writing about something you may not necessarily know about, and you do have to speculate a lot. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Knowledge does not only come from experience. Why do you go to college? If, If all knowledge came only from experience, you could just spend your whole life writing about your experiences and you never have to go to college and read anything by anybody else or study anything anyone else has ever written. Knowledge can come, some kinds of knowledge come from experience. We're all shaped by our experiences, but we're also all capable of learning about other people's lives and experiences. And that's why we go to college to learn things that we don't know directly from our own experience. Yeah. And I think that even with um, history and it's not necessarily separate from art and in fact, I believe art influences is influenced by history and vice versa. Like in Kyle T. May's book, um, Everyone Indigenous Solidarities, something I didn't know, but I really feel like I should have known this, partially because of my interest in sci-fi and partially just because the public should probably have known this, but I did not know that the writer of The Invisible Man was um, an Afro-Indigenous person. Well, according to Kyle Mays, all Afro-descended people are Afro-Indigenous people, right? He says that he redefines indigeneity. That is, Indigenous people are still Indigenous when they're displaced from their homelands. So the fact that African-Americans are the descendants of people displaced from their homelands, they're still Indigenous people. So... You know, most African-Americans don't consider themselves indigenous people. For most people, this is a new idea. Um, I happen to find it a really compelling idea and and a useful idea. Um, But, you know, Kyle Mays didn't just think of that because he has ancestors who are African-American. He thought of it because he has a brain. Yeah, because lots of other people have ancestors who are African-American and have not thought of that. I guess I'm just thinking with this particular instance, it's a fictional story, but the idea of an invisible man kind of comes from those ideas you were mentioning of like all this history that we're simply not talking about. Mm -hmm. And the irony is that for this particular story, a lot of the subtext and commentary is lost because we are not acknowledging who wrote it but like whenever i had to read isn't the invisible man about ralph ellison's own experiences i thought it was more i mean i read it a long time ago so I i think it's like a fictional story i'll admit i haven't read it but um I felt like, yeah, let's not talk about it since I read it a long time ago and you haven't read it. So yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't really say anything about it because I'll probably be misremembering. I don't know, but uh, what I gather, it's a fictional story, but that little slice of subtext just isn't there if we ignore the author's history.
Um, okay, as I said, I don't, I, I, I can't really make any comments on that book since it's been too long since I read it. I can talk about Kyle Mays because I just. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking about like larger when we like how whenever I had to read the book Animal Farms, I was saying we always had to talk about the Russian Revolution beforehand because otherwise it would just be a book about pigs. Um, and I think that is sort but, of- You know, I, I guess I would say, I feel like one of the things that gets lost when students read Animal Farm in high school um, is that they read it in a kind of a Cold War context. And George Orwell was a critic of the Russian Revolution from the left. He was not a pro-capitalist uh, ideologue. That is not why he wrote Animal Farm. Um, he was much more sympathetic with anarchism. And um, so, you know, I do think in that case, not his ethnic identity, but his political identity is important to how we read the book. That is, do we read it as a Cold War anti-Soviet diatribe or do we read it as a, um, a an anarchist critique of power? And identity is made up as, of many different facets as we discussed earlier. Um, but sort of the second part of the question that I was that's like my main research question is why might we overlook some of these factors when talking about the creation of like a work of art or anything that people have produced overlook what factors the kinds of factors of identity and their personal beliefs and um like you were saying about animal farm and how sometimes the context is lost because people don't really think about George Orwell as being that far left? Um, well, I guess I would say um, because of a lot of the things we were talking about in class about how um, our school curricula were created in a pro-imperialist Cold War context and that still shapes them. But as more people get into teaching and hopefully um, think about what they're teaching, um, is it possible that we could start looking at these factors or will it always be just something we kind of ignore? And it's not possible to look at every facet of someone's identity. And I understand that, but is there something we should look at primarily? Um, again, I don't think that we should reify or stereotype identity and what it means. So I'm not sure that suggesting that we look more closely at identity is going to help us get a richer and more critical view of history or of the authors that we read. I think that we need to look at um, historical works more more critically and more contextually. Okay, what is not only what is the identity of the person who wrote this, but what is the context in which this was written? And what is the author's argument? And I think if you read more of Orwell without knowing anything about his identity, um, 
like his race or his gender. Um, but if you look at other things that he wrote, you would see Animal Farm in a different context. You know, read Animal Farm alongside Killing an Elephant and Homage to Catalonia, two other works by Orwell that you don't get exposed to in high school. Just like if you read Martin Luther King and you all you hear is his I Had a Dream speech, um, you're going to get a very different picture of Martin Luther King than you do if you read his Riverside Church speech. Um, you know, he's still going to be a Black man, but you're going to see a very, very different Martin Luther King. But a lot of people did identify with Martin Luther King's message, despite not having his exact background. So I think maybe there is some core human experience that some people may identify more with than others because of, well, I'm sure that people during the civil rights movement were more openly facing the types of oppression he was talking about, but his beliefs are still present today. Which ones? The ones from I Have a Dream or the ones from Riverside Church? <laughs> well, history is not always kind to how we remember things. Uh, in, so, I mean, I think that we should um, also learn a fuller Martin Luther King by reading some of his other works. And in his Riverside Church speech, you will see Martin Luther King attacking capitalism, attacking imperialism. Um, but the reason we only learn about I Have a Dream is because it's so easy to incorporate that into the narrative of American exceptionalism and progress. Whereas his Riverside Church speech is a complete denunciation of the United States. That's kind of part of the issue with just teaching, not as a teacher per se, just as education on the whole is that you can't get as deep into certain areas as you want. And like with Martin Luther King, he has all this stuff to say, but we attribute like a few statements to him, mostly just, I have a dream. And there isn't really enough time to teach that in a course itself. You know, I raised two children and from the age of about three, children are very capable of asking why. If you know any three-year-olds, You've heard them ask why. And they're also very capable of understanding that sometimes things aren't fair. And again, if you've ever been around a three-year-old, that's not fair. You've heard them say that. And they're also capable of understanding that things are complicated and people are complicated. Um, so I think we really underestimate what uh, students, especially young students, are, are capable of, uh, of dealing with in terms of intellectual uh, complexity and um, things that aren't always pretty. And uh, thank you for joining me. Is there anything you would like to add? Um, no, this was great. Thank you very much. Um, I would love to see your final product if you when you finish it. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please spread the word to other people about this podcast, and follow me on Instagram at patrickhampton100, or Venmo me at at capital P Patrick dash capital H Hampton dash 17. Until next time.